Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for joining us uh, for the show today. I think it's uh, certainly fair to say that for the next couple of days, at least, uh, much of the political world is going to be focused on the uh, January 6th committee public hearing, which gets public hearings, which get underway in prime time uh, tonight. They'll continue on Monday. The, uh, the committee tells us that they're probably going to have six, maybe seven public hearings after almost a year of investigating uh, what were the root causes of the January 6th insurrection and uh, who was responsible for what happened. The Washington Post this morning uh, published a story in which it said that the committee is going to attempt in the course of these hearings to essentially answer six questions. I'm going to read them to you quickly and then introduce the panel. Number one, how much responsibility for the January 6th violence falls on Trump? Second, how did Trump and his allies use the levers of government to try to keep him in power? How did so many people come to believe and act on Trump's lies about the election? What's the connection between officials' actions and ordinary people's violence on January 6th? Here's a very different one. How was the Capitol so vulnerable to attack? And then one that a lot of people uh, think is very important, what should be done to prevent similar attacks on democracy uh, as we move uh, forward? Of course, Republicans are going to counter the narrative Democrats uh, will lay out starting tonight by saying it's merely a distraction from the real problems that are facing the country, the overall economy, inflation, gas prices, uh, baby formula shortages, and uh, the like. So it's going to be a very dramatic few days, I think, uh, in Washington and beyond, and Georgia will play a big role in these hearings. All right, that said, let's get right to our panel and start talking about all this. It's Thursday, which means my partner from the AJC is the boss himself, Kevin Riley. Hello, Kevin. Bill, good to be with you. You know, when you talked about the drama that uh, we're going to experience tonight, you left a, a few things out. I just have to mention. I mean, the Braves are going for their eighth win in a row, and they're on TV tonight. Oh. And let's not forget the uh, Stanley Cup Finals and the Women's NCAA World Series. So I don't know what I'm going to watch. I've really got to think about this. <laughs> Kevin, uh, thank you for adding a little note about the sports uh, that's taking place uh, tonight. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're also joined uh, – by uh, Eric Tannenblatt, who is a longtime Republican insider. Uh, you've heard me talk about Eric's credentials on this show many times. He goes back a very long way in Georgia politics, having worked years ago with Paul Coverdale, back when Republicans were in the minority in the state legislature. He went on to uh, do a lot of work with all of the Bushes, uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and uh, uh, Jeb Bush, when Jeb Bush was running for president back in 2016. And, of course, Eric was also involved with the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 and was the chief of staff for Governor Sonny Perdue in the first term of uh, Perdue's uh, tenure as governor. Now 
He is uh, at uh, Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Eric, did I did I introduce you with enough uh, credentials today? You, you did. Thank, thank you for that introduction, and I'm happy to be coming to you live from our nation's capital, where all the, quote, drama will occur tonight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. Melita Easters is back with us as well. She, I think you know, is the founder of the Georgia Wind List, also the director of the organization, which identifies uh, Democratic pro-choice women to run for office in Georgia, primarily legislative offices. And Melita, you're in the midst already of a big election season. So thank you for being here, Melita. Thank you for having me. We have a record-setting number of Georgia women on the ballot this fall. Uh, We should also say that you are now a regular panelist on The Georgia Gang, which airs every Sunday morning at 8.30 on Fox 5. Political junkies know the show uh, well. And it's been great to see that they've made you a regular on that show, Melita. We're also joined by Chuck Cook. Oh, yeah, no problem. Chuck Cook, who is... um, inarguably one of the country's top immigration lawyers. We often call on Chuck to talk to us about immigration issues, but he is also an astute observer of politics, which is another reason we'd like to have you on the show, Chuck. And I think we've tried to make the point on a number of occasions that you're relatively agnostic when it comes to partisan uh, views. You're, you side with Democrats sometimes, Republican other ti- uh, the Republicans other times, and nobody quite often just is it likely, right? That's exactly right. I'm, I'm probably like a lot of people in America. If I could just be president for one day, just one day, yeah. I could fix everything. <laughs> All right. Let's start talking about the hearings, and, and let's do it from the Georgia angle uh, to start, Kevin. Um, we now believe that Brad Raffensperger uh, and Gabriel Sterling are uh, in negotiations right now to uh, uh, be a part of the hearings. We don't know what day, what night, whatever they will testify. Um, but of course, Raffensperger had the infamous phone call with uh, Donald Trump in which he fended off Trump's request or order that he find 11,000 plus votes to give uh, Trump the victory in Georgia. Gabriel Sterling was a uh, part of all that. Uh, so they will be, as they have been all along, very prominent as the committee tries to lay out th- what led to the insurrection on January 6th. Yes? Yeah, Bill, I think that'll be one of the most interesting things about these hearings, uh, because, of course, the the Georgia potential lead characters are all there. And, and I just wonder if it'll be like, you know, going back to, say, the Iran-Contra hearings. Will a Georgian end up being this hearing's Oliver North or Fawn Hall? I mean, what will really happen? There's certainly a strong likelihood that someone from Georgia will be a really major character in all of this. And uh, that'll keep it interesting for all of us. Yeah, I want to, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about a witness we know is scheduled to be uh, uh, heard tonight. That's Caroline Edwards, U.S. Capitol police officer who is believed to have been the first officer injured in uh, the attack. And, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But, but Eric, I, I wanted to start with the political uh, people uh, because uh, clearly they played a huge role on both sides, both defending against Trump and cooperating with Trump. I wonder, uh, Eric, everybody knows Brad Raffensperger's story by now. 
And I just wonder, um, while I understand his testimony will be meaningful, I just wonder how much impact it has since we've known about it for a very long time now. Well, it's going to be part of a broader, um, you know, a broader hearing. So I think as you outline the questions that the Washington Post posed, uh, I think it sort of fits in uh, with some of those questions. But really, the, the big the big thing to watch tonight, I think, is uh, how political if this comes across as being too political, it, it, you know, if this is a serious hearing and it's done in a serious way, uh, I think it can be very impactful. But if uh, the majority plays their hand and uh, turns this into a circus and then the Republicans on the other side, uh, you know, try and uh, turn this into a political circus, uh, I think it's going to just take away from uh, the impact of what I think the intent was of both the chairman and the vice chairman of the committee. Melita, Eric just singled out something that I think is really worth talking about. Uh, we'll talk about other Georgians in a minute, but as long as he brought it up, uh, that's, that is a danger, isn't it? You know, the New York Times ran a piece the other day with a headline. This was their headline. It wasn't a quote from anyone on the committee. Nevertheless, it was January 6 hearings give Democrats chance to recast midterm message. Um, and, and that's probably plays into what Eric's talking about. How political will this hearing and series of hearings come off, Melita? Well, I think it's to be determined by the tone of the questioning. But what the reality is, this is a fight over the rule of law. This is a fight about how strong our democracy is and whether we strengthen democracy so that we never have another January 6th insurrection. What we have to remember is that the Capitol suffered 1.5 million in damage in the most prolonged attack against it since um, 1814, um, when the British tried to burn down the Capitol. And so really, this is a fight over the rule of law and the survival of democracy. You know, it's. Uh, I think these hearings come down to Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger. Um, uh, Liz Cheney is going to have a prominent role tonight. Uh, she's speaking second after uh, Jimmy Rafkin speaks. Uh, I think the committee itself has been pretty measured because of Liz Cheney and Adam uh, Rafsinger. They, I think, they have kind of kept the reins in. Uh, and I, and I, th- I expect that to continue. I think it was a massive mistake uh, for McCarthy to change his mind and not allow more Republicans on this committee because only Republicans asking questions are going to be Liz Cheney and Adam Rafsinger. That's, uh, that's going to be a problem for Republicans, I think, going Chuck forward. Chuck makes a great, great point there. Um, and, you know, uh, taking, going also back to what Eric said about whether it's going to be a circus. I mean, if you really look at the Mueller uh, hearings, you know, that that whole thing, which which is sort of the most recent, you know, style of something like this we've had. I mean, the Republicans were able to, I mean, literally control half the time and kind of um, distract from the issues at hand and sort of dive into details as if they were important. And so the, there was never like quite the overwhelming message that the uh, that committee wanted to create. In this case, there's basically no opposition on the committee. And that 
gives them the freedom to conduct. It would be like having a prosecutor make the whole case all day in a courtroom with no defense attorney really capable or there to do something, right? Eric? Yeah, I, I just, um, well, first of all, I want to you know, just acknowledge the role that Liz Cheney uh, is playing. I mean, she, she really, you know, she's standing up for the rule of law. She is, you know, not backing down. And I give her uh, a lot of credit for the courage that she's demonstrating. But going back to the New York Times story that you cited earlier, Bill, um, I do not think that these hearings are really going to have an impact politically across the country as we look ahead to the midterm elections. I just think that the economic challenges that we're facing right now with inflation uh, those are pocketbook issues, the, the rising gas prices. Those hit everyday Americans. A lot of the people that are going to be watching the Braves games and all of the other uh, events that are taking place tonight, including the Indigo Girls uh, at Chastain Park, um, I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, the country is facing some big challenges, and that, those are the issues that are going to really impact the midterm elections in November. Uh, Melita, let me get bring you in, but let me add to what Eric just said. Uh, David Brooks uh, wrote in his New York Times column this morning uh, something I think it, that, that is worth talking about coming out of Eric's comments. He said, um, if you think you can find the magic moment that will finally discredit Donald Trump in the eyes of the electorate, you haven't been paying attention over the last six years. Sorry, boomers, but this is not the Watergate scandal. And he may have a point there. Melita, I'm old enough to remember I was a young uh, editor at a book publish at a business publishing house right out of school when the Watergate hearings were going on, and all of us in our office were glued every afternoon to radio coverage of the hearings. Even in prime time tonight, we're not going to see that kind of concentrated focus. I don't think. Well, we won't, but I think the Watergate hearings loom over this because of the anniversary. And if you read that Washington Post op-ed by Woodward and Bernstein comparing the actions of Richard Nixon to the actions of the twice-impeached former President Trump, then it was a chilling, almost make the hairs on your arms stand up read. And I think what Eric was trying to do is what Republicans will do. They will try to deny what was going on on January the 6th. They will downplay and discredit the witnesses. They will divert attention away from January 6th by talking about the economy and other issues. Anything they can plausibly do to diminish the impact of these hearings and to diminish the impact of what January 6th actually stood for is the only tactic Republicans have. But Chuck, let's look at the other th- uh, point that Brooks made in his column, which was you're not paying attention if you think that somehow there's going to be a magic bullet that will change how people feel about what Trump did over uh, the course of November uh, through the insurrection and beyond. You know, one of the problems with the committee is it's taken a year and a half to get here. Um, and a year and a half, uh, the incessant drumbeat of the stolen election has baked the idea of that into the minds of at least 35 percent of the electorate. Um, and so you really, you really these hearings are talking to 10 or 15 percent that really still don't understand what happened. And 
they may very well be at the Indigo Girls concert tonight, uh, rather than paying attention to this. Uh, even though it's in, in prime time, um, the audience that maybe needs to hear it more than anything else is not going to hear it because Fox News is not going to play the hearings uh, on, their, on, their, on their TV show. So it's, um, it, it'll be good. I think it's cathartic to go through this. But I agree with Eric. I don't think it's going to change a lot of minds. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily going to change what the Democrats have to do to try to win the election in November. I think Brooks gets at a really important point. And, it, and let me try to you know, put it this way. Yeah, I made that reference to the Iran-Contra hearings. They went on for three months because we were a different country then, and the media situation was different then. I think one of the mistakes that, you know, in terms of people wanting to make the case against Trump, if that's what they're trying to do, could be making here is imagining, almost being nostalgic about how America has handled this kind of crisis in the past and think that if you put hearings on TV, it will have impact. I think the social media clips will be the single most important communications tool that they have, whether they want to admit it or not. And I think monitoring all that stuff and seeing to whom the information gets and the counter-programming on social media will have a lot to do. But to imagine that millions and millions of Americans are going to spend their evening watching something like this, we're just not that country anymore, I don't think. I think Kevin's point is very, very well taken. We are not the same nation that we were during the Watergate hearings when Uncle Walter gave us the news um, and, and there were only three major networks and the Internet hadn't been invented and, and modems didn't let us access everything via Google. And, and so I think that's why we'll see the hearings themselves take place in a different fashion. But we are definitely not a nation which consumes news the same way we did decades ago. Let's talk for a minute about Caroline Edwards, because she do, uh, um, one of you said, you know, we're going to see possibly one, uh, somebody emerge as a real uh, star of these hearings. And Caroline Edwards, Melita, you, you made that point, I think. And Caroline Edwards certainly uh, is, is going to be someone whose story, I think, has the potential to rivet people's attention. She was a Capitol Hill police officer. She was on the front lines in the first wave of the attacks on uh, the uh, outside of the building. Uh, she had a, somebody picked up, um, I think it was a police barricade, and threw it at her. She fell to the ground. She hit her head on the concrete. She got up, but she was dizzy and disoriented, and yet she continued to try to hold the line against uh, the uh, people who were attacking the Capitol, um, and she ended up being being grievously hurt by this. She she has, uh, uh, Melita. I think you you said she's been back in Atlanta. Her mother's here in Atlanta. She's needed care, and and I want to read a very short statement that she gave in a, in a court hearing when one of her alleged attackers, Ryan Samsel, was uh, asking. Uh, to uh, 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 to be bailed out, she said this. She said this. When will we 
be set free? When will we be set free of the memories and scars of that day? When will I be free and full again, free of the fear that my brain injury will cause me embarrassment at the best of circumstances and further injury at the worst? I think that tells us what we might expect in terms of the drama of her story tonight, Melita. Yes, she's a petite, five-foot-four-inch, blonde-haired woman, and I think um, it was a bike rack that was thrown at her and forced her head to the concrete. She has been back at the Capitol um, since she Mm. has been assigned to desk duty, but she has fainted on the job as a result of these traumatic brain injuries um, since returning to duty. And so I think she's going to make a very compelling witness during the hearings this evening, and I think she could very well have quite a star turn as she talks about the impact of of this injury on her life. Eric? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with Melita. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, hearing her personal story is going to impact a lot of people. And I think we all need to be reminded of what happened that day. You know, as someone who worked on Capitol Hill, I was horrified when I saw what took place. I think one other thing that will come out of this hearing, too, and we mentioned Liz Cheney earlier, but I, I think it's an opportunity for people to stand their ground. If they believe in the rule of law, and they stand uh, stand for it. We saw, you know, Georgia, while Georgia's been in the national spotlight, uh, you know, let's not forget, we were in the national spotlight a couple weeks ago when both Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger surprised people across the country by Governor Kemp's margin, by Secretary Raffensperger winning without a runoff, um, because they stood their ground and they believed in the rule of law and were rewarded for it. And so, you know, whether this impacts the midterm elections or not, I guess that's debatable. You know my view on that. I do think what what this hearing can do is it could demonstrate to people that really do believe in the fundamentals of our democracy and the rule of law. And I think that is critically important if we're going to survive as a country. You know, Eric, I, I, it, it's, you're saying having worked on the Hill, January 6th had special resonance for you. I think people know that on January 6th, Tamar Hallerman and I were on the air live on this show as the uh, insurrection, as the attack was unfolding. And both of us, of course, had, had worked long days and hours in the U.S. Capitol. And we were stunned, stunned by what we saw on the TV screens we were watching unfold. And I do think you're right that tonight that's going to come across perhaps in a way that many people may have forgotten just how violent and horrifying it was. Chuck, let me, before we get to a break, turn to another Georgian who we think will play a role in these hearings, and that's B.J. Pack. Um, He was, of course, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at the time of the presidential election. And he very he very summarily suddenly resigned his job in the aftermath of the election. Now, we think we know pretty clearly that he did it because he was getting pressure from Trump and Trump's allies to uh, try to somehow be involved in overturning the results of the election. But hearing him talk about that in testimony will add a whole new dimension about Georgia and this effort. Well, it appears that B.J. is in negotiations with the House uh, committee to testify. 
keep in mind, it was only two days before January 6th that B.J. Pack resigned. Uh, mm -hmm. B.J. Pack is a serious lawyer, uh, a, a terrific human being, a uh, lifelong Republican. U.S. attorneys just don't randomly assign, assign, resign like that. Um, that just doesn't happen. There, there is clearly something that happened uh, that uh, put his ethic, ethical bristles up and, and concluded he had only one option to pursue, and that was resignation. Uh, I, I think his testimony could be extraordinarily important and, because it's really never been heard. He's, no, he's never talked about it. We don't really know what happened, and I think this, that could be the bombshell. Uh, of this uh, of this hearing. All right, let's do this. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the potential political impact, especially here in Georgia, on elections of what we're going to watch starting to unfold tonight. We'll do that. We have a bunch of other topics I'd like to take up with the panel, too. First, let's pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Kevin Riley, Chuck Cook, Melita Easters, Eric Tannenblatt join us for uh, today's political uh, rewind. Kevin, let me start with you. Eric already uh, um, made it clear that he thinks that the impact on the midterm elections will be slight uh, as these hearings unfold. But let me ask you about uh, Georgia. It, it, it's, it's, it, one of the things that Eric has already mentioned is that by um, refusing to uh, uh, cooperate with Donald Trump in his efforts to overturn the election here. Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger uh, have really stood out as uh, and will be viewed as, as uh, candidates of integrity uh, right now. And I can't help but wonder, as the hearings unfold and we hear more testimony about what happened in Georgia, whether their um, uh, images will in fact um, be uh, burnished by that. They'll grow even uh, uh, larger. And I wonder what kind of trouble that might present to the Democrats in the upcoming election. I would love to start with you and then we'll go around. It's hard to imagine that uh, Raffensperger doesn't come out of these hearings uh, even stronger with a higher profile. Um, he's... I mean, he, he's told the story many times, so, you know, the argument is that it won't be quite as new, but, but he has gotten better at telling it. It's become clearer. Uh, he, he, I think he and, Trump and Kemp have the chance to really come out of this uh, well because of what their, act, their actions were. And let's face it, voters are only going to remember a few key things, right? So, like, is Burt Jones going to be in trouble because he's, you know, basically his behavior is a little bit uh, nefarious in all of this. Let's just be honest, you know. But running for lieutenant governor, you know, in the long cast of characters that they're going to call, uh, you know, will Burt Jones' name be heard? Will he testify? I mean, I, I just think that I don't see any way it doesn't help Raffensperger and Kemp. Chuck, we've mentioned on this show a couple times now that uh, because of the challenge by David Perdue, 
uh, because Kemp stood firm against Donald Trump, uh, it creates this impression for some people who aren't paying attention that he's almost a moderate. And in fact, of course, Brian Kemp is anything but a moderate. And yet, it'll be interesting to see. Democrats are going to have to attack, it strikes me, uh, and remind people of just how conservative he really has been in his first term. Uh, my guess is that the Abrams campaign is well prepared uh, to do that over the course of the uh, next few months, and certainly they'll have the funding to do so. Uh, but I, I agree um, uh, with Kevin that uh, Rafsenberger, this is this is going to propel him forward, I think, in the general election. I think it does help Kemp a great deal because of the perception that you because if Trump really comes off as bad as it appears he is in this, uh, and you stood up to the bully, well, you're the guy I want representing me because you stood up to the bully. Um, I, I I don't see a downside for either one of them come the general election. Um, and the Abrams campaign and whoever the Democrats have uh, uh, ultimately for Secretary of State has an enormous amount of work cut out for them to overcome that. I think what will be pretty good publicity for for the for the independents in the middle that that are really determining the election. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, we're going to this election is going to be nationalized based on, I believe, economic issues. But if they want to use this as a way to nationalize it, I think that both Governor Kemp and Brad Raffensperger are sort of inoculated from that because of what just happened in our primary election. And, you know, those that are going to, you know, sort of follow what it sounds like the uh, counter arguments going to be from the Republicans in Washington, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Andrew Clydes, they, they live in districts right now that, you know, they don't really need to worry in the, in the general election. So I think of all states, Georgia probably won't be impacted uh, by this uh, that much. And I think that in particular, uh, both Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger will actually be stronger after this is over. Well, Lita? I think that, that both Brian Kemp and um, Raffensperger have enough of, of a record that the Abrams camp and the Secretary of State nominee will have plenty of other things to throw at them. And they will both be – have plenty of money to, to get that message across. You know, I always thought that Burt Jones was helped a lot more by Daddy's money in his campaign account than by the Trump endorsement. And it's going to take a lot of daddy's money to wash away the fact that he was one of the fake electors um, being prepared for this possible challenge. So Burt Jones will spend a lot of daddy's money um, washing away the sins of January 6th. Yeah, we've talked about Burt Jones and his role in the uh, in trying to overturn the election and what impact it may have on his run for lieutenant governor. But um, I think it's something we'll continue to look at closely. But Melita, let me um, take another step on all that. In the debate uh, for the Democratic runoff debate between uh, D. Dawkins Hagler and B. Wynn uh, for secretary of state, both of them tried very hard to make the point that anyone who thinks Brad Raffensperger is somehow a moderate or a liberal or is uh, doesn't support some of the um, uh, misinformation about what happened in the elections in 2020 doesn't understand Raffensperger. They both pointed out that, yes, he held the line against Trump, but that he also made a point of campaigning on the fact that he was stopping undocumented immigrants from voting, which doesn't 
happen in this state. So, I mean, once again, we're talking about someone who has improved his image dramatically, but isn't necessarily somehow the moderate stalwart that perhaps people think of him as being right now. Very true. He's no choir boy. And that Democratic runoff debate gave us a um, a prelude, so to speak, of what will be happening between now and November once the nominee is established. All right. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how all of this uh, plays out. And uh, just to make a point for all of you, uh, obviously, the hearing starts tonight. It is in prime time, 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, it is going to be carried on all of the GPB platforms. You can hear it on GPB radio. You can watch it on GPB TV, PBS's coverage. Um, it will be on our uh, website. Uh, so there's, um, there are many ways that uh, GPB will be part of the coverage uh, uh, for tonight. Um, why don't we do this? Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way a little early? And Because it'll be a good time to... Uh, Pause and then come back and talk about some other issues in political news. Let's uh, do that right now. We'll be back with more. Kevin Riley, as I said at the top of the show, Republicans are going to counter these hearings uh, by suggesting the Democrats are simply trying to change an important subject, which is that our economy is in trouble. Inflation is uh, hurting many, many people. Gas prices are out of control. I mean, these are all very valid issues and the sort of issues. And, and by the way, President Biden's approval ratings are at uh, his, almost close to historic uh, lows. And, and so that's going to be the Republican argument. Um, I, I mentioned that because I want to begin a conversation about the new Wall Street Journal uh, NORC poll, which came out at the beginning of this week, and it offers some data that supports what Republicans say are the real concerns of Americans. Would you describe the state of the nation's economy these days as what the Wall Street Journal asks? Excellent or good? 17% say that. Poor, not so good, 83%. Kevin, that is a tough number for Democrats to have to look at. Yeah, I, I agree, Bill. I mean, I, it's really hard to uh, look at our country right now, whether you're at the gas pump or the grocery store or just, uh, you know, talking about your summer vacation and not feel just, you know, I just refer to it as a malaise. I mean, things just seem, you know, the, the, the uh, pandemic lingers every time I fill up my car. It seems like it, most I've ever paid for gas and the grocery bills are big. And I, I just don't think people are feeling great. I mean, who they blame and why they would blame them and how they might vote in November. I mean, I think some of that is is a little bit harder to predict. But I don't really talk to anyone who's all fired up about, you know, how uh, things are going in the country right now. Well, I went back and looked at the poll a little bit. I guess it's interesting, the data in the poll. It's from a month ago. It's not from last week. Uh, so these numbers may or may not have changed since then. Uh, but what's frightening are some of the other questions in the poll about the state of democracy in the United States. Um, what's unclear is the percentage of you know, which, which, which people that lean which play politically view the, view the state of the country. And it's not a huge poll. It's about 1,000 people. 
Uh, but it shocks me that um, we seem, as a people, to be losing faith in our country. Uh, and I think that, more than economic stuff, more than anything else, that scares me. Because it's, it's yeah. only faith in the, the democracy that keeps the democracy moving forward. Well, I want to get to that part of the poll, but but I, I want to talk a little bit more about the attitudes about the economy, uh, for, for, because I think when you dig down, there's some interesting uh, kind of contradictory uh, responses. So, so Eric, so we had 83% of the people saying they're, you know, the economy is in terrible shape, they're worried about it. But then when they were asked how peop- they're getting along financially these days, um, uh, 60 plus percent say they're pretty well satisfied or more or less satisfied. Um, it seems contradictory, and it strikes me that it somehow Democrats are going to have to figure out how to uh, m- make a point that people are individually doing better than they see the whole economy uh, doing overall. Yeah, that, look, that's hard to do. I mean, there's, there's, uh, while people may feel that way, uh, they're also very um, apprehensive and concerned and worry that, you know, while they may feel okay right at the moment, but they don't know what's on the horizon. And, you know, history shows that, uh, you know, midterm elections are terrible for the occupant of the party in power in the White House. Uh, you know, this election that's coming up is going to be a referendum on leadership. And the current leadership just happens to be all Democratic, both chambers of the Congress and the White House. There's nothing you can do about that. And so when people feel apprehensive or are concerned, they opt for change and because they want something better, something brighter. And, and I think, you know, the reminder of, you know, whether it was going back to Afghanistan or seeing what's happened in Ukraine or the gas prices and even the hearing tonight when we start to see what you know, the, the tumult that occurred at the Capitol and how horrific it is, it's just going to make people feel badly. And when you feel badly, you want to feel good. And you're going to want change. And so the change that will occur in, in November will likely be, you know, towards the other party, which in this case will be the Republicans. Melita? Well, I think there are a couple of things and you, when you dig down in the poll to look at. One is that the majority of the people on the poll, only 24 percent considered themselves liberal, 47 percent considered themselves moderate, and 27 percent considered themselves conservative. More than half had either high school or less. uh, I mean, well, more than a third were high school or less with their education. But the thing that this poll didn't survey, which I think would be very curious to go along with all this data, is where these people receive their news and how Mm. they consume headlines. Because I do believe that a steady diet of certain news sources creates a sense of malaise and creates a sense of things not going so well. And so I would have really appreciated knowing where and how these people got the headlines and the news on which they base their opinions. One thing I noticed in the poll, Bill, that, you know, I think figures into this somewhat, um, not to send our conversation in a different direction, but one of the questions asked about whether you would like to see the Supreme Court completely overturn its Roe versus Wade decision. And 68% say don't overturn. 
which is a pretty consistent number. We've seen that in Georgia, right in the same neighborhood, and that number seems to have stayed there. So, I mean, again, I think that it, 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 it gets to the concern, divisiveness, let's just call it the uproar in the country. People are like, gosh, this abortion thing, let's just leave it alone and not add it to my list of concerns, conflicts in my family, conflicts in politics, conflicts I have to read about or hear on the news. So, again, I think it just speaks to this unsettled nature of our country right now. Well, and now we can turn to what Chuck Cook uh, was talking about. Uh, Kevin, you cite abortion specifically, and I want to ask Melita about that in a couple minutes with a decision of the court coming up in the next few weeks. But Chuck, here's what you were talking about. Um, the let, let me just give a couple of the numbers that stood out for me. 86% of the people who respond to the, po- to the poll say they are that we are greatly divided when it comes to the most important values in this country and over half said they expect those divisions to worsen five years from now that's exactly what kevin's talking about this perception that we are an entirely divided country then only 33 percent said they were optimistic the way our leaders are chosen under our political system elections and just 32% said they were optimistic about our system of government, a democratic republic, a <laughs> republic, and how well it works. Now, let me hasten to add, uh, our, one of our favorites, Professor Andrew Gillespie, who d- data crunches this sort of stuff, said, be careful about how questions are asked. Given that possibility that the questions are kind of more generalized, still, it's worth commenting on, Chuck. Well, the, the question where you talked about being divided about our most important values, the thing to remember is the question didn't ask you what the most important values were. Uh, and I suspect that if you put in family and faith and constitutional respect, I still think there would be 86% to say we're divided. I think we're much more united than that. I think, it's, I think for that particular question is how it was asked. Um, but it's also the perception. There's been a, such a there, – there's been – I'm not going to say it's a growing divide. I'm going to say that it has been a perception that people on the other side of the political divide are different from you in every way, when in fact they're not. There are a couple issues for each person that may stick out that are different from somebody else. That doesn't make them radically different than you. It just means they have a different opinion on something. Um, and I think I think the press plays a part in this. I think the the, the and I don't and I don't call the the cables. That's not press. The cable news. The cable news folks are really effective in presenting divisive information, and rarely talk about it. Whereas the local news talks about the the, the more the more conjunctive efforts that we all make. Yeah, I, I look. We, we are so polarized as a country right now, and and Melita made a really good point about you know questioning where people are getting their information, and the problem is they're getting it from all kind of sources, and they're getting it, they're listening to what they want to hear, and until we you know figure out how to control that, and I don't know that we ever will, uh, it's only going to get we're going to get more and more entrenched and more and more divided, but it's going to take people. Uh, like the Liz Cheney's of the world, like the Brad Raffensperger of the world, to stand up for things and stand on principle and to try and demonstrate what Brian Kemp did in this, in this last primary by uh, standing up to the former president uh, and, and, and to, to win by that margin. I think that brings me hope that, you know, people actually 
uh, can look at the facts. And I do think you're right, Chuck, that we need to bring people together and we need to get people to try and tackle issues together because we're not that far apart. The problem is the messages that they're hearing are driving them far apart. And we need to get the people that are committed to working together to bring people together. Picking up on that, Eric, I mean, one of the questions that I was most interested as we looked at the poll, uh, basically two-thirds of the people in the poll agree with the following statement. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are generally harmful for society because they emphasize differences between people, right? So we know that part of what social media does in the, you know, the algorithms that they use is that you know, the more controversial, the more people are arguing on the Twitter or Facebook, the, the more that stuff rises to the top, the more people see it. And that, again, I don't know that Elon Musk is going to solve that for us, but I do believe that Americans are going to come to understand that. And they are going to realize that, hey, using social media for your daily news feed is, would be the same as going to a, a fast food restaurant to eat every meal. You're going to really hurt yourself. And I believe we're coming to that conclusion, albeit a lot more slowly than I wish we were. Um, all right. I, I appreciate all of your comments on this poll, because as you said before the show, Chuck Cook, you found this kind of a depressing <laughs> a picture of where America's at right now. But you also offered another side of that. And, and I just want to briefly, before we move on, I wrote about this as uh, my uh, uh, in the newsletter, uh, the Political Rewind newsletter that went out yesterday, what wrote about the poll. And, and what I come to the conclusion of is something where you stand, I think, uh, Chuck, um, I, I said that our personal interactions and how we treat each other uh, respectfully, acknowledge our shared humanities, are, is important to keep in mind when we look at this kind of thing. Goodwill toward one another cannot transcend the systemic divisions that we are dealing with, but it can lead us to a place where we can be more caring and generous neighbors and respectful members of our communities. And I think that's the answer. Uh, the problem is when we look at the country uh, in, in, in terms of the social media that, that Kevin and Eric are talking about, it, it, it feels as if we stand with great hostility toward one another as a people. This is, um, you know, the unfortunate part about this is that it, if we go back six or eight years, we were somewhat divided, but it, it didn't feel like this. Uh, the poll question that Kevin pointed out about Facebook uh, um, uh, is is true. I mean, it's just absolutely true. Um, and I, 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 you know, we all have to make attempts to decide how we're going to handle that. I mean, it ultimately comes down to an individual decision: Do I want to be part of the problem, or do I want to be part of the solution? So I just blocked all the people that were mean on Facebook, uh, and you and you learn to limit uh, the the types of news feeds you get on there that of negative stuff that that causes you to be negative. Uh, not that we all need feeds on our social media that are full of puppies and kittens uh, playing around, but I think it's important to, to for us to make the individual choice. Are we going to be part of the problem? Or are we going to be part of ultimately the solution in this? All right. Melita. Oh, Eric, why don't you weigh in and then I'll ask. I got a question for Melita. Well, it, it, this conversation just made me think of something. And it's somewhat of a, of a commercial, but um, if, if I highly recommend that people have knocked on or seen go to the Atlanta History Center. There's a exhibit right now uh, called Out of Many One, 
which is a compilation of George W. Bush's paintings of 100 immigrants. And you walk through the exhibit, and in the president's voice, he tells the story of these immigrants, and it ends with the immigrants giving a two- to three-minute uh, discussion as to what it means to them to be an American. And it is so inspiring to see these immigrants who came over to America and how much they appreciate our country. And sometimes, as I was listening to them, I felt like these immigrants appreciate our country a lot more than some of the people that live here and were born here. Amen. Thank Bill. you. Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Chuck Cook, immigration attorney. Uh, Melita, we're running out of time, but I certainly don't want to miss an opportunity while we have you on the show, given that the mission that you have set out for the Georgia win list is to identify pro-choice Democratic women to run for office. Um, how are you looking toward uh, the end of the month when we're going to see the Supreme Court finally uh, issue its ruling on Roe? And what impact do you think it's going to have on the candidates that you're supporting in the election? Well, we only support candidates who um, would have been in favor of upholding Roe v. Wade. We only support candidates who would oppose restrictions on the tenets of Roe v. Wade and and abortion in Georgia. And so we think that the Supreme Court decision will motivate many women to get more involved. And we know that most of the women we support would vote to overturn House Bill 481, Georgia's six-week abortion ban now under federal court review. We also believe that some of the moderate suburban women who may have voted Republican in the past will think about reproductive freedom for themselves and their daughters and vote for Democratic pro-choice candidates as opposed to the stale, pale Republican males who are on the ballot in November um, in those contested races. Uh, Eric, uh, very quickly, uh, you're a big supporter of Brian Kemp, but uh, if this abortion ruling does overturn Roe, uh, what do you think the impact might be on people like him who have supported a virtual uh, ban on abortion in Georgia? Look, I think it's going to mobilize people on both sides of the issue. And, and so I think it's going to be uh, a wash. Um, I think probably, you know, I, it, it may take away from some of the focus on the economy and inflation. But I think in a state like Georgia, it'll, it'll be a wash. All right. Uh, Melita Easters is, is shaking her head. No, it won't be a wash. We don't have time <laughs> to get into this discussion any further today. But we, you know what, Melita, we'll definitely invite you back uh, to be a panelist when we talk about it as the decision uh, rolls out. That's it for us for Political Rewind. Uh, Chuck Cook, Melita Easters, Eric Tannenblatt, Kevin Riley, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Uh, we'll be back, of course, tomorrow, and by then we'll have seen the first night of the public hearings uh, in, in, on the January 6th insurrection and talk about them with our panel uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. Tomorrow.